what we're trying to do here is highlight ways in which we find the good news of Jesus Christ. We find the good effect of the work and life of Jesus being forecast to us by these minor prophets. The minor prophets are rich with symbolism, with metaphor, with messianic references, and in those ways have a tremendous worth for our study and for our attention. What we're trying to do over the course of this summer is not only acquaint ourselves or in some cases reacquaint ourselves with books that tend to be obscure. I'm guessing you don't have a lot of underlining in Haggai in your Bible, a lot of highlighting there. Um, but these are the scriptures that were given to the people of God. And they were very important for sustaining the people of God and giving them a sense of identity at a very challenging time. Haggai prophesied during a very specific time. Sometimes we have to guess and we have to wonder, like, when was this book written? The book itself gives us such clear ideas. He's working in the year 520 BC. 520 BC. And this is something that's happening in the fall of the year, probably sometime around September to December. That's how specific this is. This is very interesting, and we can know this by, with some confidence, of course, not absolutely, but we know this because of the references to King Darius in the very first verse. Now, exiles, as you know, people had been dragged off to Babylon um, and had been living there for quite some time. Uh, 586, 587 is the fall of Jerusalem. So one of the things that stinks about this is you have to be good at negative numbers, right? Like, wait, what? 586, 520, what's happening? Uh, yeah, so as the numbers get lower, you're actually, forget it. I'm not gonna, I was never good at math, which is why I preach. But that simply to say, it was a horrible season for Israel. I talked about, I think it was last week, talking about the fact that uh, there were having there were some prosperous people living in Israel when they got dragged off because they had been oppressing folks. They had been uh, hijacking homes and taking advantage of uh, widows and and all of this horrible activity had profited some of these people. God comes in and he drags them off in their prosperity. One of the things that I grew up in church never knowing, so I'm hoping I'm not alone. Somebody can say, yeah, I never knew that a lot of people got left behind that the people who were dragged off to Babylon tended to be intellectuals, creatives, political leaders, people that conventional thought would describe as the cream of the crop. Those were the people who were dragged off. And the people who were powerless, who had no wealth, who had no skills, who had no experience, who had no talent, they were left behind to languish with nothing. No defense, no protection, no infrastructure, no leadership, they were left behind to languish in this horrible state. To make matters worse, Babylon would have sent in, as Assyria did in the north, they would have sent in foreigners to inhabit the land. Now, we all remember the story about the Good Samaritan or the woman at the well and how Samaritans, you've heard this in church if you've spent any amount of time in church, how the Samaritans were like hated and despised because there had been uh, intermingling that took place when the Assyrians sent foreigners to live in the northern part of Israel. And at some point, some left-behind Jewish guy looked at some really hot Assyrian person and was like, yeah, this is great. What have I got to lose? Everybody's gone. Nobody's, you know, paying attention. Next thing you know, you have Samaria. 
What's happening in the south is not that much better. Persia overthrows Babylon. Not a big history lesson, but you have to bear with me. I'm sorry, just to make sense of the book. Babylon, the bad guys, Nebuchadnezzar, all this kind of stuff, they get overthrown by the Persians. And when they're overthrown by the Persians, the king allows a delegation to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. And they get letters. Everything's done through channels. It's appropriate. There's some excitement that Jerusalem that's been torched, it's been leveled to the ground, temples destroyed, stuff stolen, taken captive, hijacked. They're going to get to go back and and rebuild, and they're sent in uh, uh, several delegations. They get back, and if you want to read this, uh, this is maybe a good thing. We partner up the book of Ezra with the book of Haggai, okay? These books work together. Ezra is, is giving us the historical context and the story, and Haggai is giving us a little prophetic work in that setting. And here's what we find out. When the people of God come back to do God's work, to rebuild his city, his temple, all of this, they run into opposition. Shocker. And the opposition ends with the project being shut down with the foundation of the temple in place, and that's it. So imagine, if you will, with me, a construction site that's been excavated. Uh, There's equipment laying around. They're sort of getting scaffolds, getting ready to do some building. Inspectors show up and say, this project is over. You cannot build. Okay. So what happens? They say, well, let's build our houses. We're going to build the temple. We can't build the temple. Let's build the houses. So Haggai is written after 19 years of Israel looking at a construction site. For 19 years, they've been walking by rubble. For 19 years, they've been looking at cinder blocks. They didn't have cinder blocks, but they're looking at a foundation. That's all they're looking at. Roped off, taped off, Construction zone, don't come in here without a hard hat. For 19 years, they walked past it. And Haggai shows up at the end of the 19 years with four oracles, four messages. So Haggai chapter 1, let's, well, we'll start at the first verse. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, I told you this was specific, right? The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai saying, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses? Can I say this saucy style? Because I think the prophet was getting sassy here. Is this really time for you? He was snapping and shaking his head. For you to live in your paneled house while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. You have sown much and harvested little. This is a poetic feel here. This would be hip-hop if I could do that sort of thing. No, really, this is like poetry. You've sown much. You've harvested little. You eat. You never have enough. You drink. You never have your fill. You clothe yourselves. No one is warm. 
you earn wages to put them into a bag with holes. Song is over. (laughs) Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You have looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins while all of you hurry off to your own houses. Let's pray. Father, please send your spirit among us this morning. Give us ears to hear what you'd want to say. Open up our hearts. Build us, challenge us, comfort us, encourage us. Call us further into what you have for us. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. This first oracle that we just heard is a call to action. It's resume the building project. Now, this is odd for prophets, right? Because prophets usually get caught up in theology, and Haggai seems to be caught up in a to-do list, right? This is a Home Depot affair. This is not a sanctuary affair. It's not go to church and learn more about God. It's not repent at the altar with weeping and crying. It's go to the lumber yard and open up an account. That's the message of Haggai. And it's easy to dismiss it, especially for those of us as Christians who we're easily trapped, I think, some of us, into sort of the ethereal, spiritual things, and we dismiss the Home Depot runs as inconsequential or unspiritual. But here's the reality. We are all living, as the police said so beautifully years ago, in a material world. We are not, uh, well, forget it. Sting, it's not the cops. But we're living in a material world, and we can't, and we shouldn't want to deny that. We shouldn't want to escape that as much as we should want to understand that it is through the material world that God wants his life and his reality to be expressed, hence the incarnation. God became man and dwelt among us. Resume the building project is just as spiritual as repent. In essence, it is repent because our practical realities almost always point to deeper spiritual realities. Practical realities almost always point to deeper spiritual realities. Our struggles and our successes are not mere physical expressions, material expressions. They're pointing to something deeper. And what's deeper here, I think, for the children of Israel who are back in the land of promise, is that on some level, after 19 years of looking at a raw construction site, they got used to it. Is there anybody besides me All I need is like kind of this wave. You don't have to throw your hand up or a hanky or something, but just like a small signal. There's stuff in your life that is not finished. And rather than go at it, you've just gotten used to the fact that that's not finished in my life. (laughs) I'm seeing little pop-ups all over the room, like big ones, right? I mean, there's stuff in our lives, starting with my diet, that just it's unfinished. And I'm like, I'm... 
I'm big and I'm beautiful. <laughs> right? Like you have that way, like you're just going to own it. Hello? You get to the point where it's like, I'm large. I'm either going to put my shoulders back and be a, a large man, right? Or I'm going to go to the gym and I choose A pretty much every day, right? <laughs> Come on, somebody. I need an amen up in here. Thank you, brother. <laughs> but see, see, here's the thing. There's a sweet spot, isn't there, in all of our lives? Because we don't want to look at our lives in despair on the one hand, but on the other hand, we don't want to get used to things being the way they shouldn't be. Does that make sense? Like we don't want to be beating ourselves up and condemning ourselves and woe is me and I'm horrible and I'm a failure and I'm a loser. Man, it's year 17 and we still only have a foundation. We're not looking to be those people, but on the other hand, we don't want to become the people who are like, you know what? I don't really think we need a temple. Like these foundations are really nice. Does that make sense? This is what Haggai is getting at. I think when we hear this first oracle, we hear, what do we hear? They're getting used to small harvests. They're getting used to leaky bank accounts. They're getting used to putting a lot of effort in without getting a lot of return. And what they've done almost maybe as a coping mechanism, and that's my speculation, but is they've done what they can do to give themselves a sense of completion and fulfillment, and that is they have worked on their own stuff. God speaks to the prophet in a way that is so particular, it hopefully got your ear as much as it gets mine, because he says what? He says, you live in paneled houses. I'm like, I didn't like paneling. I grew up in the 70s. Paneling is bad. Like, what? paneling, and I had to look it up because I'm a five on the Enneagram for those in the Telos class, and I just had to know, like, what is this paneled house stuff? And here's basically what it comes down to. The theory is that it's speaking more to the fact that they have attended to every last detail in completing their homes. In essence, They've tried to do the God thing. It got shut down. They've gotten used to going nowhere with the God thing, so let's do the me thing. And what's interesting here is there's no opposition to us finishing our own homes. You notice that? No enemies rise up and say, stop finishing your house. No governments rise up and issue decrees saying, you need to stop paneling your house. That never happens. And friends, I'm convinced, and maybe I'm wrong, but our privatized faith is no threat to anybody. I'm convinced that if we want to go back and build our own homes and have our own really wonderful Christian walk all by ourselves with God, nobody's threatened by that. No kingdom light is being shined through that. It's fine. Knock yourself out. It's when we come together and we do something as a corporate body that the light, the city on a hill starts to shine. And that's when you start to get opposition. Think about what it says in the NRSV twice, what we read this morning. Consider how you have fared. The prophet says, how's this working for you? Yes, your house is paneled, God's house is a construction site. You're busting your butt for really small returns. 
How's that working for you? The New Living Translation phrases it, I think, in a way that's a little bit more helpful. Look at what's happening to you. Two times the prophet asks this question. Look at what's happening to you. In other words, the privatization of our faith, the, the being okay with this project unfinished, it does something to us. We settle in at a level of life that God has not destined us for. He's not called us for. In the second chapter is our second oracle, and it's this word of encouragement. Is there anybody besides me who appreciates a good word of encouragement now and again? Certainly after the first chapter, it's like, come on, God, we need something up, right? He was very sassy in the first chapter, I feel, right? He was very, it was in your face. And so God comes in the second chapter through his prophet with, let's look at verse four together. In verse four, if I can find it in my Bible. Yet now, take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, here's why, I'm with you says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when I came out of Egypt. I love this line. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. This section of encouragement concludes with the ninth verse. And before I read it, listen, think about Solomon's temple. Has anybody ever seen a rendering of Solomon's temple? Has anybody ever heard of it as a wonder of the ancient world, covered in gold and gleaming in the sun? Spectacular. The height of ancient architecture and building projects. And here's what God says to these down and out failed people. Verse 9, the latter splendor of this house, what you're about to do, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. For every person who's ever got something unfinished in your life, I say amen. For every person who's grown content with things that you shouldn't be content with, I say amen. For every person who's chosen to focus just on themselves because church was too risky, I say amen, amen, amen. God's presence is with you. God's spirit is with you. The people who have been sowing a lot and reaping little, God's presence is with you. The people who have been eating but not filled, drinking but not satisfied, my spirit abides with you. The person who doesn't feel it, doesn't think it, and can't believe it, God's presence is with you. This is encouraging. It's telling us that our confidence is not in our ability which has been proven inept over 19 years. Our confidence is not in our organization or our planning. Our confidence, our lack of fear, is due to the presence of the Spirit of God. And friends, please, somebody has to hear this besides me. I'm preaching to myself this morning. If I get a little excited, it's because I'm preaching to me this morning. God's future work will exceed the grandest exploits that you've heard of God's past work. It seems hard to believe, 
when you look at a 19-year-old building project that it could exceed Solomon's temple. The third oracle comes starting in the 10th verse. And on our third oracle, we find a confirmation of God's intention to bless. If the first message that God sent was in response to stopping rebuilding and God blowing away their crops, the first message God sends is trying to get their attention. The second message God sends is saying, this is going to be good. The third message God sends is, I have a feeling you didn't believe me when I told you it was going to be good. Let me tell you again, it's going to be good. There's a rhetorical device at play here. God's saying things for a reason. And that's because if you're like me, you're well acquainted with your own weakness. If you're like me, you can disqualify yourself in a second. I'm not going to ask for a hand to be raised but I have a feeling there's more than one person like me who can, I can tell you why God shouldn't bless you, bless me, not you, sorry, woo, woo, talking about me. I can tell you why God shouldn't bless me, why my wife should leave me, why my kids should hate me, and why you should all fire me and I should just go away. I can do that in a heartbeat because evil is deep in my heart. And when God comes, God comes speaking life to all of us. And when you've been cultivating disbelief, when you've been cultivating negativity, when you've been cultivating death in your heart, Sometimes God's got to come back a second time. When things have been bad for a long time, 19 years, when your, your expectations went from the highest of high, can you imagine how excited they are coming back to Jerusalem 19 years ago? Zerubbabel, his name means sown in Babel. His name implies to us, we don't know for sure, he was probably born in Babylon. He's born in a foreign land, doesn't know the wonders of Jerusalem. So he's going to have the privilege to come back and restore the glory of his ancestors. So excited. Yeah, it didn't last long. Comes crashing down. And after 19 years of debacle, God says, hey, let's get going. This project is going to be grander than even Solomon's temple. Okay, God. Yeah, right. I am so grateful, not only that God comes to those of us who have failed, not only does he come to those of us who've messed up and have been indifferent or lazy or whatever we've been, he comes to us, he doesn't leave us in our squalor, in our poverty. He encourages us, and when we struggle to receive his encouragement, he encourages us again. Look at the 19th verse of Haggai chapter 2. Is there any seed left in the barn? Do the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree still yield nothing? From this day on, I will bless you. Friends, I have a feeling that there's seed in your barn. There was seed in Israel's barn. And seed is always a metaphor for potential. Seed is always an image that we can grab onto for future life, for future growth, for future prosperity, for future increase. Because you got to remember, you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't produce a seed, it produces a plant. 
If I put apple seeds in the ground, I don't get apple seeds back. I get a tree with apples full of seeds. Is there seed in your barn? This is God's question. This is his third oracle. Call to action. A word of encouragement. And then let me convince you. I really am going to bless you. What's amazing about this book is the last verse. The last verse could probably slip by all of us. 23, chapter 2. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. This is when Haggai narrows down this prophecy to one particular person. Who is Zerubbabel? As I said, his name means sown or scattered in Babel. We hear that he's the son of Shealtiel. If we go back and do a little research, it's not hard. We find out that Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jehoiakim, who was the last king in Judah. What that means then is Zerubbabel is David's heir. He comes in the line of the greatest king of Israel. What it means is that he's an heir to a throne, but right now there is no throne. He's a puppet of a Gentile king. Not only is he the puppet of a Gentile king, he's presiding over a failed building project because he came 19 years ago with the crowd, with the remnant, to do the project. He was leading it. Go back to Ezra 4 and look at it. His name is right there. He's the guy that comes back and presides over great possibility and great failure. What is it like, if you could just engage your imagination with me for a little bit this morning, what's it like to be Zerubbabel in this time in Israel's history? 19 years into failed, stagnant work where people have abandoned the God project for their privatized situations. I wonder if people looked at him and saw him as a symbol of failed leadership. I wonder if there's somebody, because, I mean, we don't ever do this now, but who, like, blames leaders for their own condition. Like, if there had been a better president, our king, my life would be better. I don't know. I'm just thinking, like, could somebody look at Zerubbabel and say, if your family hadn't screwed up, none of this would have happened? I don't know. Or maybe they look at him directly. And some people that now start to get a little white and gray in their beard like me, they say, you know, we came here with you 19 years ago. You told us we were going to rebuild a temple. This is what we have? 
You haven't just let us down. You've failed us. It would have been better. You remember they said this in the wilderness, right? It would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt. It would have been better if we had stayed in Babylon to come here and be failures. You made us all sorts of promises, and this is what we have to show for it. Could you imagine being this man every day, waking up to this sort of greeting, thinking that if people are nice to you, they're just sort of patronizing you? They're hoping, well, maybe someday this guy will hit it big and I'll be his friend and they'll remember. Maybe they'll make him the king again someday. This guy is like a washed-up movie star. He's like the third generation of some great, powerful business person. And he gets the last oracle. He gets the final message. And it's a message of God's faithfulness. To an impoverished line. You see, he's got royal DNA, but he's overseeing rubble and rabble for that matter. He's the heir of an eternal covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and says, I'm going to build you a house. Here it is, friends. This is God's great promise, Zerubbabel. He's even got a bad name. Right? Try to get it out. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. It's not fun. But again, looking for baby names, I'm just saying. Right? He is living out something none of us want to experience, but on some level, we probably have all experienced the pressures of people looking at us thinking that the baggage from our family's past writes off our future. If you'll turn with me, just give me a minute. I'm not going to take a long time to do this, to Isaiah chapter 6. I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. Isaiah chapter 6, I use this text to preach on Trinity Sunday. It is the lectionary text for Trinity Sunday, Holy, 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 thrice holy God, Father, Son, Spirit, is what we would say as Christians. This text is a text that should leave us breathless, right? With the awe and wonder, like Isaiah, saying, Woe is me, I am undone, and I am a man of unclean lips. But what's interesting is that as a literary unit, Isaiah chapter 6 starts with this pronouncement of a holy God, But it ends with something altogether different. Look at verse 12. Uh, Until the Lord sends everyone far away, that would be the exile. And vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land, that would be a desolate temple. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it'll be burned again. This happened. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it's felled. And look at this, the holy seed is its stump. You see, we too often read Isaiah 6, I think, just focusing on the front, not realizing it's one continuous message, one that begins with angels and seraphim singing of a holy God and one that ends of a holy God talking about a holy stump. And I would suggest to you that Zerubbabel 
is the holy stump. Zerubbabel is the one who's been cut down, who's been leveled. The lineage of David has been chopped off at the base. It's been filled, but here's the thing, it hasn't been uprooted. And I'd invite you to consider if this morning you walked into this place and you feel like everything in your life has fallen down around you, you feel like the ax has been laid to the roots of your tree or your life, if you've got a stump, you've got hope. Can I say that one more time to somebody who didn't believe me the first time I said it to you? If you have a stump, you have hope. Because in that stump is a holy seed. And I think that's what we see in Zerubbabel in this final oracle. He's cut down, but he's there. He's present. There's nothing beautiful about a stump, and there's nothing beautiful about Zerubbabel's life and leadership. There's nothing, you can't walk up to a stump and grab an apple off of that. But the holy stump has a purpose. Isaiah chapter 11, starting at verse 1, the prophet says, A shoot shall come up out from the stump of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, out of the stump will come the branch. We call him Jesus. Out of what looks like a desolate, fruitless, broken, chopped down situation will come salvation. You see, if you turn to Matthew chapter 1 later this afternoon, because you have to figure it out, verses 12 and 13, here's what you'll find. Zerubbabel's name shows up in the New Testament as part of the lineage and genealogy of Jesus. You see, this fourth oracle is an amazing oracle for everyone in the room who's living under the pressures of people's expectations, for everybody in the room who's living with the weight of a failed project and an unfinished life. Everyone who hears this, who comes from bad seed and bad stock, and your parents were awful and your grandparents were worse, that's his story. For the person who should have something to offer but really has nothing to offer, you're in a good place. Boy, that sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? You see, this oracle says that this broken down, impoverished, and washed up grandson of a king has a future. He has a future as God's signet. Now, we're not a culture that uses signet rings or seals in this way. But signets, you might remember from the story of Joseph and Pharaoh. Pharaoh gave Joseph his signet. You might remember when Daniel gets put into the lion's den, they seal the den off and the king uses his signet to close it. You might remember Judah when he impregnates his daughter-in-law, Tamar, she takes his signet. A signet is a sign. That's where, right? A sign net, a signet. It is a sign that brings the full presence, weight, and authority of its owner to bear. If I have the signet of the, if Brent had a signet ring and he gave it to me and said, go to the bank, it would be as if Brent went to the bank and I could take all of Brent's money because Brent gave me his signet. That's what a signet ring 
symbolizes. And what I want you to hear this morning is not that God gave Zerubbabel a signet. He didn't. He didn't say, I'm going to give you my signet ring and you're going to be able to go around in my power. He didn't say that. He said, I will make you my signet. Is it possible that we've spent too much time looking for God to give us something when he's been wanting to make us something? Is it possible that we've been saying, give me power, give me wealth, give me abundance, and he's looking to make us the means of those things? In the midst of our poverty, in the midst of our brokenness. You see, that Matthew section where suddenly this broken down heir of a king is included in the lineage of the king of kings, who would say in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Who would go on to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Who would go on to say, I am the vine or I am the branch and you are the smaller branches. And if you ask anything in my name, the Father will do it. This is the final oracle. It's not what God gives us, but it's what God makes us. Father Wilfred Stinnison, talking about the Holy Spirit, says this, it is the Spirit, the Comforter, who leads you to realize that this very poverty is your true wealth, that it gives you power over God. Now, notice it's in quotes there. Poverty gives us power over God because God cannot resist a person who is aware of his poverty and stretches out his arms to him. And so this is the gospel according to Haggai. The poor are God's signet ring. Only those with nothing to lose can believe that God's future exceeds all we've made. Let's pray. I really feel impressed this morning to extend an opportunity for someone who identifies with Zerubbabel. To extend that hand that we just heard about. If you feel stalled, impoverished, far short of what you're called to, this morning, as we by grace extend our hearts and hands to the Spirit of God, this is our true wealth, recognizing our poverty. If this is you this morning and you need this hope, you need this encouragement, your desire to walk out of here somewhat renewed in your mind on this matter, I want to pray for you. Not in the script, not in the plan, just want to pray for you. If you just extend a hand, just like that quote just said, just extend a hand and I want to pray for you. Just keep the hand up and don't care who sees it. Don't care. God sees it. God sees you right now. You're walking in your wealth right now. As you hold that hand up, you're walking in your wealth because your wealth is your poverty. My hand is up with yours. My hand is up with yours this morning. Father, we're reaching our hands to you this morning. 
We're not going to pretend that we have it together. We're not going to pretend that we know what we're doing. We're not going to pretend that this is not weighing down on us. There is stuff weighing down on us this morning. We're aware of it. But God, thank you for being the God of the holy stump. Thank you for being the God who looks at a stump and sees a seed. And I pray for me and I pray for every person who has our hands in the air that this would be some sort of a moment. God, in the prophecy, you said this. You said, on this day, I will, con- I will begin to bless you. I pray that this would be that day. Lord, give us the faith to at least ask for that much, that this would be some day where we walk out of the building, we feel, we sense, we have this, this thing in our gut that we know you've made us something. May each one with their hand raised, those of us who didn't have faith to raise a hand, may we receive this blessing through Christ our Lord. Amen.